We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. IXL's all-inclusive online teaching and learning platform simplifies EdTech needs and accelerates achievement in 95 of the top 100 U.S. school districts. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights at every level of your school or district. This one solution performs work that typically requires dozens of tools. Want to find out why so many leading districts trust IXL? Visit IXL.com BE. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to Transformative Principle, where I help you stop putting out fires and start leading. I'm your host, Jethro Jones. You can follow me on Twitter at Jethro Jones. Welcome to Transformative Principle. I am stepping into this uh, episode real quick to talk about what you're going to hear today. So I was recently part of a panel discussion about the teacher shortage and had a great conversation with Charles Fournier and Kevin Stoller and Michael Horn and really good stuff uh, that we talked about. So I hope that you enjoyed this conversation about that. And the reason why we did this is because we need to be having more conversations about this. And I feel strongly that uh, we are facing a real crisis as it relates to uh, teacher shortage and teacher um, engagement in their day jobs. And um, I have my other podcast, My Bonus Money, which is all about how teachers can make extra money. And I do that not because I think that they should always have a side hustle or, or that they um, that they need to do that, but I recognize the reality and that money is a real issue. And while it may sound like in this uh, this interview that I'm not for teachers making more money, that is not the case. I am definitely for teachers making more money. I just do not believe that that will solve the problem that we currently have. Uh, and it's not just about um, teacher attrition or teachers leaving the profession. Uh, it's really about them being engaged in and loving and feeling valued in in that job. So I think that that needs to be improved. That needs to have some 
better things happening than what we currently have. Um, so I really appreciate this conversation and uh, definitely check out Charles' uh, podcasts. Um, uh, it is called called Those Who Can't Teach Anymore, and it's a seven-part series. Uh, and so you can go look that up wherever you you listen to podcasts. And um, I think that uh, that you will enjoy it. Good, good seven-part mini series, worthwhile and. Enjoy this conversation with uh, me, Kevin, Charles, and Michael. Uh, thank you so much, and enjoy this episode. All right, well, I'll, I'll start it out here. Um, so this is a... a roundtable discussion that kind of popped out of kind of a necessity. So uh, it was really prompted and I'll just kind of give a little bit of background of who I'm affiliated with as we go through here as I, as I kind of pass it around. But um, I always say I'm a mission-driven entrepreneur that wants to improve education. And I have a few companies in the education world, but we also um, host a podcast, the Better Learning Podcast, that is really affiliated with several other organizations. So the people that are listening to this are coming from circles, everything from school leaders to architects and designers that build schools. And um, and what prompted this is Charles Fournier had a series that came out, and I'm going to introduce you and kind of talk about that. But it really felt like this is something that we need to pull in more people's perspectives and, and start having discussion about how can we solve it? How can we all move it from all of our different perspectives and unique, um, unique levels of influence? So Charles, I'll kind of Hand it off to you from here. All right. Well, uh, my name is Charles Fournier, and I'm an English teacher, a high school English teacher, and I teach some concurrent enrollment classes. Um, and I I received a grant from the Fund for Teachers Fellowship, uh, which is a it's a self directed professional development uh, organization. They're they're wonderful, and really, uh, my thought was to create a podcast about why teachers are leaving, and and part of this was for my my teaching practice. I want to be able to share with kids the the process of creating something and to also create something that you care about. And so for me, this this professional learning that I put together was uh, to kind of put myself in making a legitimate podcast because I wanted to, for my students, an example of a product where like, no, I'm proud of this and I'm, I'm actually putting it into the world uh, so that we could do something similar. So the podcast itself, uh, it's seven parts and it goes it focuses on teachers' voices, but I pull on a lot of other folks too to to get different perspectives about why teachers are leaving education. And throughout the series, we look at the history of education um, and what inequities and maybe stereotypes teachers have inherited uh, from you know from the uh, I would I'd say like from Indian boarding schools the the inheritance of inequity within who we who we create education for. Uh, we look at the uh, industrialized system of education and how how that's impacted it and the f fact that it's a pink collar job uh, where because women historically have been prominently teachers or, or like 70 some percent teachers, how that's allowed for folks to just treat teachers worse and pay them less and, and how that's that's kind of something we've inherited. We look at popular culture and how stereotypes of a Robin Williams character uh, is impractical, and we're not going to live up to that. Like as much as I wanted to be Robin Williams at Dead Poets Society, it just wasn't going to happen. Uh, to the opposite, where you've got like Jack Black and um, 
the uh, school of rock where he's just some dude off the road that can be a better teacher than anybody. So we've got these stereotypes that we have. Uh, and then I, I kind of get a little bit closer to home. I'm from Wyoming. And so we look at really, why are we in education? Um, and that the fact that if I ask what's the purpose of education and we don't have a clear, cohesive answer is part of the problem. Uh, and we look at legislation and how not having a clear answer and how that is in, you know, legislation is going all over the place, uh, trying to dictate what education's for when they don't have a clear directive. And a lot of those folks are making decisions. And uh, one of our legislators, this is his line is Chris Rothfuss, but he said, the people making decisions about education couldn't be hired in the education system. And so when we have that lack of information, um, and then the, the last couple episodes are looking at uh, teachers that stay, why they stay, and teachers that are leaving are doing really well. Uh, I actually just had a buddy text me. He was in my first episode and he said, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. I accepted a new job and it's a huge pay increase. And he's like, I've never seen this much growth for my pay ever. And he taught for 13 years. He's been out for two years and he's already had several raises and other opportunities. And so not not as a threat, but kind of as a natural consequence, realizing that unless something changes, teachers will leave and they're going to be okay when they leave. Um, and that's something that's scary. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's the podcast. That's kind of, kind of where I'm at. Awesome. Jethro, you want to take it from there? Yeah. So I am a former principal, also a former English teacher, and also um, I'm the founder of the B Podcast Network, which is right now 16 shows all about education and excited to be here. Uh, my biggest show, Transformative Principal, I started almost 10 years ago. And the big thing for me is that, and this is going to play into our conversation later, is that I learned that my own professional development is the responsibility of me and nobody else. And when I learned that for myself, then it really changed how I approached every learning opportunity. And I think made me a much more valuable person myself, but then also made me uh, able to, to be more in control of other parts of my life as well. So thanks for having me and excited for this conversation. Uh, thanks for having us. And then Michael. Let's hear, uh, yeah, let's hear your perspective. Yeah. Last and least after those two, but, uh, I, I'll just say it's great to be here. Uh, Michael Horn, I founded the Clayton Christensen Institute, ran the education team there for just under a decade. And I've written a number of books on the future of education, really trying to move toward a system, uh, that personalizes learning for each and every student so that they can build their passions and fulfill their human potential. Uh, and out of that work, has come a strong recognition as it relates to this topic. The job description we ask teachers to do is unsustainable uh, and not conducive to creating this student-centered uh, world of learning that I think we all hope for our kids. Uh, and second, that requires some real rethinking of what that teacher role is. And so in my most recent book, From Reopen to Reinvent, uh, there's an entire chapter that comes at this around what would reinvention look like? What is the research around motivation for employees say about how we've designed the current teacher role? What does it mean from a historical perspective that we have layered on more and more demands on teachers uh, over time, every time we see a societal ill? And what's the implication of that? What would be a better human capital model 
for uh, educators and for serving students that is more in line with all those things. And then I'll say, as I, I was listening to Charles just talk, it occurs to me that the second thing I bring to the conversation is that my next book is about how people change careers and jobs in their lives. And so it's actually walking outside the education realm in one sense, but it's sort of the, uh, I, would, I would say it's, we're, we're trying to be the modern day, what colors my parachute. And uh, it, it's it's interesting because we've tracked literally thousands of individuals to distill uh, the common quests, we call it, that they go on when they change jobs and then how to help give them advice. So there's perhaps another element of this that's relevant as well to the conversation. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll, I'll kind of start it out here. And um, and I also want to mention that we have people in the audience that are school leaders, superintendents, other school leaders, that if you guys want to chime in in here, just kind of raise your hand or make a note because we want to get perspective. I would say I spend the majority of my time with school leaders. And um, so for me, I felt like, oh, man, what a big miss that I haven't been um, pulling in more of the teacher perspective, even though like we, you know, we, we kind of give lip service a little bit to of like, yeah, we need to get teachers perspective. But I think it's always be with like some intent behind it of like to validate either some initiative or, or something that's going on. Um, but I'm going to just kind of provocatively put this question out there to start this out is, are we kind of kidding ourselves that an 18-year-old student coming out of high school, going into college and trying to pick their career in college, that they are picking something that is a 40-year career? Is that currently even feasible in this, you know, in the state of the world that we're in right now? I, I think no. Uh, I don't think it's feasible. Because um, I'm, I'm, I'm not planning on being in a 40 year career, you know? So if, if I can't commit to that, how can I expect an 18 year old to commit to that? Um, but I, I think that what that allows for then is maybe we can start culturally shifting towards that growth mindset where you recognize that you're going to evolve and develop and change and shift into other things. Uh, and that's okay. Uh, so ideally I'd love that 18 year old to be prepared for whatever their first step is. Yeah. One of the things that I've heard that I'm not, uh, I'm not sure if it's actually from McDonald's or not, but they they don't say that they're the best job in the world, but they say that they're the best first job in the world. And one of the things that I think is a tragedy is that teachers often feel like there's nothing else they can do. And so some uh, can't leave because they feel like they don't have transferable skill sets. And I want to say just loudly and clearly, <laughs> a teacher's job is an incredibly transferable skill set that they have to, all the things that a teacher has to do is very valuable in many other areas. And so as far as like a career, what if we took more of an approach of being a teacher is a great way to start out a career or end a career or have a mid-career change and started approaching it from that perspective of, we want you to come and be a teacher for five years and gain these specific skills and it will be valuable and worthwhile for you to do. And we don't need to feel badly about that. We already know that most people leave after five years anyway. Why don't we anticipate that, plan on that, and start recruiting for that rather than uh, only thinking that the only way to be a teacher is to start right out of college and retire. There's a lot of different paths we should be open to. Yeah, I, and I love the way you asked the question, Kevin, because it it's always asked in the media from the perspective of the traditional education system and how it views the you know the forty year career into 
Charles's upfront point, sort of a pink collar job, that this is one of the few jobs that might even be open uh, historically to women, which is simply not the case now, obviously, uh, in, in society, and thankfully. And so I, I love that notion of empowering individuals uh, to jump in as educators, develop some of the craft and understanding of the learning science um, as they're working with individuals. Uh, uh, kids and then being able to be more transient, I think it does suggest something for the supply side, if you will, right? If of of schools, which is if that's the case, and if none of us could answer, we want to be jumping in as an 18-year-old and committing to a 40-year career or 60-year career or whatever it might be these days with uh with, with with the projections on how old we might live, then that's incumbent on us to design schools that uh, both anticipate that, as, as Jethro said, um, but then also design for it. And in my mind, that means a lot more team teaching environments, co-teaching environments, less of this one-to-many close the door. It's my fiefdom. And when I leave the profession, all my knowledge goes out the window. Uh, all of my uh, relationships with my kids go out the window. Um, I mean, you know, it's even more stark than that in the sense that like, the expectation is not just 40 years, but the unstated expectation of the teacher job right now is thou shalt be there all 180 days of the school year as well. Because if you miss a day and the substitute comes in, we know how that goes. And there's a declining substitute uh, pipeline as well. And the lack of relationships and connection to what students have been learning and so forth. And name any other profession where you know we say every single individual has to be the cow ripkin of this profession we would laugh that's unsustainable particularly in a post-covid world where we've seen the importance of flexibility the uh, desire for flexibility among individuals you got a sick kiddo at home you want to take a day off you ought to be able to figure out a way to do that we have a profession that doesn't even allow for that let alone contemplate what you just said that this isn't a lifelong uh, pursuit. When we're thinking about this, I think some some of to make that if it were to be a five to eight or ten year profession, if that was something that we were really advocating, if that was something that could happen, I think thinking about the the actual mentorship has to be so much stronger early on. Because uh, so often we hear like, "Oh, you don't know what you're doing until five, ten years in anyway." And so that's, I mean, that in itself is that's something that would have to be addressed if we're if we're consciously thinking of that short term. Um, and who knows, like like you said, Michael, maybe that is something that would bring more folks in. Um, but if we had that quick turnaround, that's something too that would it's kind of this this irony of maybe that would be really healthy, but we'd have we would have a pretty terrible shortage still. Uh it'd be even worse because we have a lot of our numbers, it's not folks quitting, it's folks retiring. Like that's a big reason for some of our losses. Um, but I think that's really interesting. And I had a buddy, I think I might have shared this with you, Kevin, at one point, but I had a buddy who talked about kind of the graph of how much you know and how much of a better teacher you get, how you kind of like you go up and then you plateau and then the excitement and that excitement starts up here and then kind of slowly goes down. Like we got to find that sweet spot where the excitement and the intelligence or like the quality teaching meets. And if we can highlight that moment for as long as we can before you get jaded and bitter or, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. But I, yeah, it's really interesting. But it, I mean, it, I just keep coming back to the quote that I think gets attributed to Deming, but I'm not even sure if he actually says it, but it was paraphrasing the, of like the results we're getting are the perfect results of the system we created. Mm -hmm. And if we're all seeing this across the board that at, you know, whatever it is, whether it's 10, 20 years in there, 
that that does start leveling off or start going down, the enthusiasm starts going down and be like, well, that, that's a systems issue. This is not like, we can't expect to your point, Charles, that teachers are superheroes and that you're, you're always there. Like it's something at the system level has to change to solve this issue. Yeah, a hundred percent. Right. You, the system we have gets exactly the results you would predict. And frankly, it was engineered around these uh, results, you know, a lot of the dropout rates or lack of preparedness for college, that was part of the design. And frankly, you know, Thomas Jefferson anticipated that when he wrote his papers of Virginia, like this is embedded in the system that we have. We're now in a world in which we say that's no longer viable for individuals or society. Uh, and so it forces us to rethink it. I, I do think that there's another piece of this, which is that there are some individuals that will want to stay and will want to see leadership without leaving the classroom, right? The only way to advance right now in the profession is to leave and to move into what we call administration. Uh, but if, again, if we're thinking about co-teaching or team teaching roles or, or a much more uh, cooperative human capital labor model, then you actually create more room for those people who don't lose the passion uh, and and want to uh, build on the uh, expertise that they've built, as Charles just described, then there's ways for those individuals to move into leadership roles, but still in a classroom environment. They're still working with students. And that's a great way to uh, retain some of that expertise to, I suspect, bring some teachers up the curve faster um, because we're probably reducing the uh, the the complexity and the cognitive load on them in those early years um, to make them more successful up front. They can learn from skilled uh, uh, experts uh, quicker and and develop faster. And so I, th I think it can question some of our assumptions uh, as well about how fast does it take to get some of these people up the curve and some of the really excellent ones we could reward and keep longer in line again with the mo research around uh, employee motivation, which is growth and advancement or, and, and responsibility are three of the critical pillars uh, to retaining and motivating employees. And we don't do that right now. That was a, of, of folks I interviewed that left the profession, one of the biggest things was the ability to advance and, and to see, I think that level of respect and being valued, that, that was a huge part of why folks are leaving because they're, one of the gals, she's from Florida, she said, I didn't get a pay increase other than inflation for 15 years. Like, why would I why would I stay? Um, and I think more to what you're saying, Michael, of, of of kind of those leadership roles too. If there was an ability to have a step or a next step, I think that would that would help keep folks. You know, that's something that we uh, actually tried in several of my uh, positions that I was in as a principal. We I, I want to highlight one of them because I thought it was it was so masterfully done. I didn't do it. I wish I would have thought of it, but we had a teacher who was so good at working with uh, kids who had behavior challenges that we uh, made her part-time uh, behavior specialist. And uh, the other part-time was still a sixth grade teacher. So she was still in the classroom every single day. And we found ways to make her schedule more flexible so that she wasn't tied to the classroom like like chained to the classroom is is really what it can sometimes feel like that she was able to say, all right, I'm going to have these kids work on this thing and I'm going to go deal with an issue in second grade and I'm going to come back and work with my own students again. And it took some 
some real effort to make that work well. And the easy solution, which is what we ended up doing, was to take her out of the classroom completely, but keep her as a teacher and make her the full-time behavior specialist. But that wasn't what she really wanted because she wanted to still have those relationships with with her students. And so I think there are definitely some ways to provide some extra opportunities for teachers to have um, to have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more time away from from their own classroom where they are solely responsible for entertainment, for uh, behavior, for everything, and giving them an opportunity to to do some other things that can be beneficial to them as well. So I want to kind of talk about that a little bit because it really becomes more of a leadership issue than the teachers. And Charles talks about in one of his episodes of like who is it whose role is it to address this? And um, you know, Charles took this on like in this project, this podcast project, beyond his normal role as a teacher to do that. And as leaders, what are the things that that we can do? Because it's that constant pull of push and pull of what's going on and legislatively and what are the things they can do. Um, and I know we have some leaders on here that if you wanted to speak up and kind of talk about that, but what is a lot? Because there's not one school leader that I talk to that does not want their staff to be happy and productive and feel like they're living a full life and and they're making the impact they want. But I'm not sure like where that disconnect or what's kind of preventing that from happening. Yeah. If if I can just continue on what I was saying, I have two, yeah, two things that we it. did to, to help with this. Number one is we recognize that each teacher could teach multiple sections. Uh, I was in secondary school, middle school mostly. Each teacher could teach multiple sections, but they were not the only one who could teach that particular section. And so being able to give a teacher an extra period in a secondary school or an extra time period in an elementary school is something that can happen. The other thing that we did related to that is we gave time during the week where every single adult in our building had responsibility over a group of students. And we gave them according to what they could handle or what they wanted. So one teacher wanted 35 kids at once, while another teacher wanted just six kids at once. And because we had everybody working at that time with a group of kids, including the principal and the assistant principal, we were able to get our uh, student-teacher ratio down to 13 to 1. And that is where people were able to build really powerful relationships and do really cool things with kids. So when it comes to leadership, you can do some of these things, but you have to put time and effort into it. And you have to think, what can I do to ease the burden on the people that are here with me? I have a question on that. You said the multiple sections, extra time. I guess I'm curious on what do you mean by the extra time period? Is it is it time for planning or time with kids? And then And then the working with kids, when you said you had that moment where you were the 13 to one ratio, what was that? Like, what was, was that an authentic relationship thing? Was it a, what what was going on, I guess? Well, I'm just curious on the kind of the details of those. Yeah. So I'll address the first one first. So you're an English teacher. Let's say your school has seven periods in a day. One of those days is your prep period. Well, other people could teach one of your other six classes. And so you could take an elective period. You could take a leadership period and do something with leadership during that time. 
or uh, you could just have an intervention class and do something like that. Um, and so there, there are different options for that. And we can go more into detail for that if you want, but I, I don't think that's really the point here. Um, the second piece is during that time, we called it synergy, where kids were working on a passion project, as it were. And because every adult was with kids, they could they could have a small group of two or three students or two pairs of two or three students, and they'd all be focused on the same thing. And uh, and if they had a bigger group, then kids were working on their own projects. But we ended up having, I think, 48 different projects happening in our school at that time. And so multiple teachers had multiple different groups of kids. Um, and I had the student council. I was the principal. And having those systems in place just gave us a little bit of breathing room is really what I'm saying, that that teachers had some room to breathe and to have a less structured class. It wasn't tied to any, any content area. So the English teacher wasn't necessarily working on English-focused things. It was more uh, loose in that regard that they were working with a group of students who were engaged and excited about what they were doing or enrolled, as Seth Godin calls it. And that made it a more powerful relationship-building type of experience that made the day more beneficial to everybody involved because it wasn't so stressful. It wasn't so, I got to get through my content. It was, what are we working on today and how can we help these kids accomplish something meaningful? Just to add a couple other examples, because I, I, I don't actually think this requires policy change. It's really at the leader level. Exactly. If we if we if we do want to open the pathway open to more individuals without teacher certifications, that's a different th th then that becomes a policy conversation, right? If we're thinking about the more fluid uh, workforce of the future. But but just to stay on Jethro's point, you know, a, a couple other models out of Arizona State University, they're Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College right now, right? They're doing uh, this next generation teaching workforce work where they're working with districts to create uh, larger groups of students. So say it's 100 students as opposed to 30. Um, and you've got three to four uh, teachers in the room. One of them might be a parapro or a specialist uh, or counselor or something like that, and three teachers. And then uh, if you imagine where the world I think is going to these blended learning models that I advocate for, uh, where the full curriculum is digital and then you're doing projects and so forth uh, as students and you're not delivering content as the teacher to every student, you might be doing it in small group settings for sure and things of that nature. All of a sudden you've created this world in which you accomplish a lot of what Jethro just talked about, right? One teacher is working with a small group of students on a particular misconception that they have. Another is coaching a bunch of individuals through a project. A third is roaming around and troubleshooting when students are uh, having a particular uh, question. And a fourth is 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 conducting a you know small group uh, a seminar a conversation out on the side or whatever it is one backs off and says, hey, you guys cover, I'm going to do some observation and assessment or think about what we're doing in the afternoon with these kids who've been struggling on this concept, whatever it is, all of a sudden, you've created a flexible more room for ping ponging off each other and teachers to lean into the different areas of expertise that they have, which isn't just content expertise, it might be Charles loves geeking out on the data and figuring out, you know, where the kids are, are are struggling. I hate the data. I don't want any part of it, but I love it when he tells me, go work with that small group of kids um, and, and et cetera, et cetera. And so that's one model. The other one we've seen is public impact out of North Carolina. They have this uh, opportunity impact work 
they have a multi-classroom leader concept. So it's it's a teacher that essentially becomes a master teacher. They're managing three teachers in their classroom and their time gets sort of broken up where they might jump into a class for a period, do what Jethro said. That teacher now has some planning time, thinking about professional development, growth, lesson planning, maybe working with one kid. Maybe that teacher is doing some master teaching to demonstrate something to the uh, novice teacher, then cycles into the next one and across to the third. And so the observational periods that, you know, you're asking a principal or instructional head of a school to do happen pretty infrequently, sometimes intimidating, not all that helpful sometimes, or all of a sudden happening with a trusted colleague on a much more frequent cadence and, and, and jumping in to actually give time uh, to teachers in some cases and create a career path uh, as well. So th those are two models that leaders can start to play with in different configurations and ways that I think can start to give some of the breathability uh, that we're talking about as well. I'm curious on, on for both of you on, on both those scenarios, I'm, I'm curious on teachers reactions to it and, and who developed those, like where teachers talk to in developing these programs, were they a top down thing or was it a collaborative effort and, and do teachers buy in? Cause as really Jethro, like hearing you talk about, it, I know you're excited about it, but hearing some of the stuff you're saying, I'm like, that just sounds like more work. And so I'm curious on, you know, on the teacher buy-in uh, just being somebody who I hear a lot of good, I, or I hear a lot of ideas that people are excited about from top down. And it just turns into me having a lot more on my, on my plate. So my experience at the places that I've gone is that it tends to be uh, co-created with the teachers in the school. Um, so there's this broad set of ideas I gave, right? And there's a bunch of exemplars, but how it fits into your context is your context and you got to design it from the ground up. And it only works if you are taking things off the teacher's plates. And, um, and like be super clear about that. Right now we're asking you as a teacher to you know, do 101 Dalmatian tasks, right? We're saying you've got to deliver the content, you've got to get through the entire curriculum, you've got to do the testing, you got to give the feedback, you've got to evaluate the, the work it can't be just transactional, right? Um, you have to handle all the mental health, behavior, social, emotional learning, uh, counselor, like all you know, classroom management, like there's a ton of tasks, right, that we have put on you as an individual teacher. Um, and I haven't named like half of them. Uh, but um, the idea is how do we take this group of individuals and start to break this up a little bit so you don't have to, you know, do all things at all, all time. It creates slack in the system. And frankly, again, if you're, if you've got to be home for a day, it's okay. There's two other adults that know the kids, uh, in that built in, in that classroom, uh, that, that do it. And there's a lot of, I mean, frankly, some of this isn't new, like Montessori education has been doing this for you know, decades and decades, right? With, uh, you know, say like a 36 to two rate ratio, right? So this is amply amping that up a little bit, but again, you're using some of the technology uh, to, to frankly offload some of the work to the students as well. And, and I, I often think like the ed reform narrative has been a bunch of reformers yelling at teachers to like, hey, you're on the rowboat. There's 50 million kids and three and a half million of you. Row harder, row harder. And like, what if we gave the students some oars so they had some agency and did the work as well? And and I hear that. In, I mean, Jethro, I'm curious your take, but I think I hear that in your description because like they're doing projects and they're driving some of the learning 
that has shifted, I think, some of the work as well, but maybe I'm misunderstanding. No, you're definitely reading it right. Um, the big thing for us was the the idea, the the time was definitely top down. That was my thing. And I said, this is what we've got to do for our students, but also for you. We did not reduce time in their content areas and we did not give them an extra prep. And this was really important to me because if we gave them an extra prep, then you're right, that it would just be one more thing to do. And so uh, when I, as I've interviewed teachers about why they became educators, because that's a question we ask when reviewing teachers, almost always their response is some form of, I want to see the light go off in kids' eyes. And that's what's super rewarding, right? That resonates with pretty much every teacher out there. And so the way that I framed it to them was, this is an opportunity for you to see the light going off more often without you being the one to push it. So give kids projects, have them work on these things, and they figure out the problems. You are not supposed to teach anything during this time. Your whole point during this time is building relationships and helping kids achieve what they're trying to achieve. So it's not an extra thing on you. It's actually giving you more time to do the things that you went into education for to begin with. That's the beauty of both what Michael and I are talking about is that it gives you more opportunity to do things that you're great at and that you want to be doing. Can I ask a question, Charles? And I'd, I'd love your take. And by the way, Kevin, this relates, frankly, I think to redesigning spaces as well for these environments um because they don't work they don't work in in a lot of the conventional classrooms if we're being honest um yeah but i'm just curious charles like i i tend to think that the popular perception of teachers is that they like to have their stage and 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 you know all eyes on me but when you get down to it with the teachers i often see more of what jethro is talking about which is that they really want to connect individually far more than they get to with students and see those magic light bulb moments and they're comfortable if you will with the trade-off of like look some of them love to be the performer but far less than we might assume i guess is what i'd say but i'm curious how that lands from your perspective you know i think i think you're right i think it's a blend um i think the idea of being like the sage on the stage is is appealing but it's exhausting uh, and to do that every day is you got to have a you got to have a lot in your pocket. Um, but when I think about my favorite projects or the things I do with my kids that are the best, it's what Jethro is describing. It's I um, like I wrote a grant to get radio equipment for my class, and I said we're going to make a podcast. And so we we listened to a bunch of exemplars, and we uh, I say okay, like what kind of thing do you want? What did you notice? And we they create the rubric, and then. And I know this is, I'm trying to meet the standards at the same time. I think what Jethro is describing is cooler when it's outside of that. I feel like sometimes that's more relevant. Like I, I really, if we could get away from standards and just create cool stuff, that'd be rad. Um, but that's actually not what I'm advocating either. Oh, no. Here's, okay. Here's the amazing thing. When you follow a kid around and see what they're doing and are able to attach standards to what they're doing, right? that's even more fun because then you're saying, Here's all these other content areas where you are hitting the standards and they don't even know they're learning. That's what's so exciting. And so, and I think that's, you know, that's a structure that would be, that would be wonderful. And I think it's interdisciplinary and it's, um, and I, I mentioned this on podcast, but I I taught a road trip class with a buddy where we just, we went on a trip and we did 
a lot of sociology and you could argue we had English and literature and now all these things. And it was that kind of what you're saying, like the, Hey, we're hitting it because we're just doing good work of learning. And of course we're going to cover these things because it's innate in learning. Um, but no, I think, I think Michael, back to your question, I, I think uh, teachers do love when, when kids can be set loose. I think of that as a coach, when I can set kids loose and they're figuring stuff out on their own and they're playing with, I coach wrestling and playing with wrestling and, and that sort of thing. And they're just figuring stuff out. Oh man, it's, it's awesome. It's the best. And then you still are there as the content expert to help them know this is not a productive line of inquiry. You need more knowledge here, right? This is a little, right. This is a little empty calorie of a project, right? Um, or, or, you know, yes, you're impressing me with your video making skills, but you're not really digging into this or whatever, right? You can, you can provide those pushes, but at a much more individual level. I do think we should call out where it may create more work, which is frankly, just on the design end, on the front end, right? Which is that you've got to spend some more time thinking about, uh, you know, what what do those standards really mean, right? What, what would mastery of them look like? Uh, and And maybe some you know, resources for research or learning the content up front. I, you know, I, I I often think the magic of a Montessori elementary school classroom is that like, they don't worry if one kid like goes really far and fast because like, there's just another activity for them to do. They can keep learning, right? <laughs> Going to the next thing. And so I think the design principle from that is you do have to have thought through, not just say like, uh, high school biology, what the content is, but you also have had to think through when that, college, you know, high school freshman comes in, like science, <laughs> all the things that they could do and, and master and great. You want to go deeper here? Fine. But some of you may be just ready to blow through and, and move into chemistry and physics concepts as freshmen. And, and we have to be ready for that. And so that requires, I think, more upfront planning, once you build the scaffolding, I think then it becomes less work on the teachers, but there is that upfront lift, I think. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. There is that. I think some of what you're describing, it feels like I have a couple of colleagues I really, really respect and seeing the kids in their classes, just being so excited, but it's one of them's agriculture, one of them's speech and debate. And so it is a little bit more like the kids have to drive the course a little bit. And the amount of work these teachers do is, is incredible. It's they're, they're there all the time. Um, and there is quite a big payoff, uh, which I think is really interesting. And, but those are the kids that, that also, and I think, I can't remember which one of you had mentioned it, but there's, I think Michael, you mentioned it, but the idea of there's has to be some accountability elsewhere. Uh, because I think some of the things you're talking about, uh, even classes when I say, guys, we got free reign, like really we can, I can, I can manage these standards to fit literally anything you want to do and, and they don't want to do anything. Um, and so how do we, how do we create that? I think some of it goes back to, I love you talking about the space, the space of the classroom. How do we shift that? How do we shift kind of also how we think about learning and education? I think those are all big things that would help feed into some of what you guys are talking about. Well, thanks for setting up the space aspect of it. I wasn't planning to go there, but it, but, but I do talk about, um, you know, that space is important. I, 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 I've actually like ranked it. What I think is the most important things. I feel like leadership is number one. And then I feel like number two is culture. And when I talk about culture, it's inside the building, but also outside within the community. I, I think the culture of the community is really is a big, we're, we're missing it if we're not pulling in those perspectives and 
talking to our communities about what we're actually doing in here. Like this conversation right now, if you talk to just like a, a parent out there, they'd be like, what are you talking about? I don't like, what, what do you mean? You kids aren't sitting in straight rows, like, you know, exactly the way school was when I, you know, when I was there. Um, and then the third is the space. And I always say like, um, leadership obviously affects both of those things, but you cannot change the culture if you don't change the space. Like you can talk about doing all this, but then if you send someone back into a room that they've been they've been in for twenty years the same way, it, it's just not going to happen on there. Um, so appreciate you kind of bringing in there because I do think it, it it's a mix of it. It's it's change has to be visible to actually make it work. Um, sorry, I, thanks for letting me go go there for a second on there. I'm going to introduce a topic that we're all going to hate money. Um, I just want to hear everyone's perspective, how much of this problem can be solved with money versus some of the things we're talking about here and how, how that plays out from your guys' perspectives. So I'll be the person that says, I don't think money is the uh, issue um, uh, in the sense that we have the dollars in the system to do the work, but we do need to dramatically change the processes and where the dollars flow through too. So right now, a few things. One, all the changes that we just talked about are net neutral in terms of the budget. Um, if we get into teacher salaries and teacher pay and dollars going to the classroom, well, that's a separate question. Uh, and there's sort of two answers on it. I think one is, let's be honest, a lot of the dollars are getting sucked up into the district administration and central office staff and not into the classroom right now. And it would be better deployed into the classrooms themselves um, to raise teacher salary. And the research also suggests like salary is a really powerful way to eliminate dissatisfaction with the job. It's not a powerful way to create motivation and, and, and satisfaction in a job. And, and, to be clear, both are important, like what, what you call hygiene factors, eliminating dissatisfaction, really important, but it's not going to create that motivation and satisfaction. And you also have to do that. And that's where the advancement, growth, respect, intrinsic work, et cetera, that we've all been talking about, that that's really where it lives. And so it's a sort of a funny uh, conversation, I think, around dollars um, or, or around it. But But to me, it's more how those dollars are getting allocated and the, the processes that we're talking about that look pretty dramatically different from business as usual. And I liked your point. I'm going to call back to the point you just made, Kevin, and Charles, you made actually at the beginning, which is I do think that this gets down to a fundamental conversation around purpose in the communities of school first and foremost, because if you don't start with a clear shared understanding of the why and not an education jargon, like we can't be talking portrait of a graduate or something, just like shared understanding of like what we want these humans to be able to do when they leave our, 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 our classrooms. Um, then it's awfully hard to get to like the next order questions of like, gee, it could look different. Gee, the space ought to be different. Right. And if you don't connect all those things, at least my experience is you can have some really cool school designs that start to open the ways for next generation teaching and learning models but communities don't know how to use them if you haven't prepared the ground of around the why because they're not ready for you know new new uh for learning to look different and then vice versa if you jump into the new learning uh first and foremost 
and you haven't done the space changes, right? Then you sort of slip back into the where, where you regress to the mean, if you will, of where you've been. And so starting with that why and that purpose conversation to be able to do any of the rethinking, to me, that's like the first and most important step above uh, even looking at um, total dollars amount. Again, I would change how I spent it, but but in terms of total dollars, I think money is in the system. Yeah, having been a principal and a district level uh, person as well, I would agree that the money is there and um, and we need to have some hard conversations about how to make that money be used better. Um, and the, the reality is buildings, like physical places are expensive and they cost a lot to run. I was on the energy committee and I could not believe how much we were p- spending on things that you don't even think about like uh, air conditioning and heating and how having school start a week earlier or end a week later could change the budget by hundreds of thousands of dollars in a large district. So those things really do matter. That being said, you can make 150, 200, a million dollars a year and still be miserable if the work that you're doing is not providing the kind of value that you need. And so, you know, I, I'm not saying that as a cop-out to say it, we shouldn't pay teachers more, but it's not going to solve the problem. And it's not going to be the, the solution that we're looking for. I do think that people should be paid uh, valuably. Uh, At the same time, we also have to recognize that um, education serves a child care function that families need a place to send their kids. We need to stop being insulted by that and recognize that that's a reality and find ways to uh, to provide child care um, and differentiate that from providing education because I do believe those are two different things. Uh, one example that I would have is I, I think that all um, – Clubs and activities should be brought into the school day and shouldn't be done outside of the school day, that they should be part of our curriculum and what we're teaching kids. And we should own that and accept it. And then we should provide, you know, if if we need child care after school as well, then we should talk about ways to do that also. And I know a lot of people don't like that idea, but, um, you know, taking, taking those teachers that Charles was talking about away even more from their families and then paying them a pittance as a coach or a club teacher, if they get paid at all, which is also a very real thing um, is not helping the conversation either. I appreciate the, the idea that, you know, there's maybe money's not the, the answer, but I also like when you said, you know, maybe you're getting paid a hundred thousand to whatever. And then you went on up from there and, you know, we're talking about being paid 30,000 to 40,000. And so, you know, I think it's humbling when folks have to have a roommate um, and they can't live on their own and they can't support their family. Uh, You can't ask them to say, do it for the love. That's not why we're here. Um, Because they could, I could, I could, I, if I stayed in construction, I'd be making triple what I'm making. Um, When I worked industrial iron work, hands down. And I didn't need a degree. uh, And I would, I'd be doing a lot better pay-wise than I am now. And I think to say, you're not going to find happiness in money, maybe not, but you might find some security. You might find a home where you don't have a roommate. You might have 
some stability in relationships. And I think this is to another issue, you know, when we talk about representation and, and who we listen to and who we talk to, um, we're, we're a panel of four white guys. Um, you know, the circumstances are very different too for other folks and where you're from. And, and so thinking about like the value of money, if you're in an abusive relationship, how nice it is to have a pay that can get you out of that relationship because you're not relying on somebody else. And so when we think about pay is not the answer, uh, not, maybe not on the whole list, like the whole scale. Absolutely. But in terms of recruiting teachers, none of my students, I guess I'm not going to say none. Most of my students, when I say, hey, what do, do you ever think about being a teacher? And they're like, no way. I don't, I'm not, not going to get paid nothing to do that. Um, so recruitment, money matters. Um, and in terms of the idea of retention, if we do want to keep teachers, we talked about incentive and growth. Part of Part of being in the country that we're in is that we equate value with money. And if I value you and I respect you, it's because you probably have more money. And I think that's maybe foolish thinking. But with that said, we see how little we value teachers based on how little we pay them. And I think, I do think it's it's a legislative piece. And I think that's something that has to do with policy. And, and like you say, how we distribute money. But I I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying that money can be spent more wisely. And I, I think, again, it goes to communication where I think we get resources bought where I say, we don't need that. Why are you buying us this stuff? And with that said, though, we can't disregard the fact that teachers need to be paid more. And I, I want to make sure that that point is very clear. Yeah. And, and I, I appreciate you saying it, Charles, just, just quickly. Um, this is also regional disparities, right? So yes. yeah. like the average teacher salary in the United States is 65,000, I think, which is above the median average, uh, for, for, for the, uh, uh, you know, country as a whole, um, what, in Massachusetts where, where I you, live. I recently just saw something that said it was 42,000 for the I'm national average. Pre pretty sure it's well above that. Um, if you not starting salary, um, Oh, okay. Okay. I see. Yeah. yeah. Starting That's salary. Right. I suspect you're right. But, but, yeah. but, um, uh, but you know, look, I'm in Massachusetts where I, I, I don't want to get the numbers completely wrong, but there are certain, uh, urban districts that are spending $29,000 per student. And, uh, that's, uh, that, that's a pretty good, uh, you know, that, that gives some of the private schools a run for the money, uh, in terms of dollars, but I don't think most of the money is going down to the classroom level. Uh, and so that gets to that point. Um, I think you're totally right where it really hurts is on the recruitment on the front end. Uh, because people don't even see or consider the path. Uh, and I think we also have to be honest that we've made some choices on that historically as a country where we chose lower class size instead of giving teachers raises and bigger starting salaries. Um, and Really, before we, just that historical piece, so much historically is tied to women being in the profession. Like when there were cuts across the country because we were going to war and we needed money. And we backed up and, and we leveraged that. Yeah. Oh, and constantly. So I think like saying historically, we allowed that, but I think historically it's, it's a larger problem that was very much a gendered problem. And, and I just want to make sure that like that has to be in the front of our mind as well. Yeah. I don't disagree. I'm just saying, so now we're dealing with this legacy where we've made a, where we've made a bunch of choices and, um, Look, I, I think I think your point. I, I'm just trying to say I think your point is a good one that we need to be thinking on the front end of this problem uh, around it. And again, my druthers, I'd be rather putting a lot more of that dollars into the classroom, by which I mean the teacher's salaries, 
uh, on the front end, um, rather than having it in the middle of, of administration that is not directly working with kids. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of, piggyback on that with what Charles saying. And it made me think of a study that was an old study. So I don't know the number, but there was a, there was a study done that looked at just happiness where there was a level you had to make a certain amount of money. And, and at that point, your happiness really did not change once you went above that. But if you're below that, you know, your happiness is really affected by that. And I do think there's some level and obviously the last few years throws off everyone's numbers of what, what that actually would be that, you know, there, it is an issue if we're well below. And, you know, I'm just Googling, you know, like average pay and I'm in Arizona, which is much lower than, than others in Arizona. It's 55,000. Um, and, um, but it does look like ranges from 46,000 up to 67,000 based on, on where, where in the country. Um, the other point I wanted to make, and I think you guys were, were doing this is um, that real reallocation of resources. Um, I talked to superintendent in Texas, Scott Murray, and he, he looked at it and he just went zero base budgeting and said, Hey, if we are going to say that this is our teachers or where we want to put our resources and we value our teachers. And he got really creative into, into doing it and trying to make it. So he's got his whole thing now is that he wants all his teachers to be paid six figures. And he's, making it happen by a lot of a, a variety of moves, but it does take kind of breaking from that status quo and somebody to, to challenge it instead of just saying, Hey, this is what our budget was last year. We're going to do the same thing again next year. Love to it. Kind of add to the story. So my wife taught for seven years and we went into education together. We kind of had this thought of like, well, this is what we'll do. And, um, and when she left education, she's just finishing up her pharmacy degree. Uh, People said, well, people are going to be rude to you. You're going to have the same issues in pharmacy. And she said, yeah, but I'll be paid three to four times more than what I'm making right now. And so I think sometimes when we talk about that, that what, what teachers are willing to make, I think that it has to do, I think it, it does come back to that idea of value. Um, a lot of times, again, in our country, we value, we put value based on, based on how much we, we put money towards something, um, getting a a note on teacher appreciation week is nice. It's very nice. Uh, but does that show that value? And I think that's something where that's where we're kind of hitting. And it, and it's not, I kind of bring this up in the podcast. Like it's not a threat. It's just a natural consequence that if folks aren't feeling valued, they will continue to leave. Uh, no matter how much we say, yeah, but we're doing good work. It's valuable. It, it just doesn't, it's gotta, yeah. there's gotta be some, uh, tangential. Thing and I know we're, we're kind of wrapping up on our hour here, but I, I think that's a good kind of closing area of there of similar to how do you, you close out your, your series that there are a lot of people leaving. This is going to be the natural consequence of, of what's going on. Um, and um, right now, when we put a job posting out right now, it is something about 70 to 80% of our applicants are coming from, from the education field right now. Um, and in fact, we made an offer to someone this week that, and, um, you know, it, it's one that I'm torn with all the time, um, because they are very qualified, like, you know, like to the point of, and there's just people that are looking and saying, Hey, this is, this makes sense for me financially for my family to make the next move. Um, so it, it's one of those where 
I, I feel it from both sides and I, and I guess um just want to kind of wrap up kind of from your guys' perspective, if there's any kind of closing statements or anything that you guys want to do. Um, Cause I really appreciate everyone's time. I feel like the more that folks like us in different levels, different spaces, different experiences can have these conversations and the more that these can be taken seriously by I don't know, greater population or folks in legislative, I think the better, because I think there are a lot of, none of us are railing against education. None of us are saying like, bring it down. But I think having a unique way of looking at things and and agreeing that, yeah, it can be done differently. Um, I just hope more conversations like this can continue to happen. Um, I really appreciated your guys' perspectives and talking to you. And yeah, and I just hope more of this sort of thing can happen. Right. Well, Appreciate everyone's time here. To the people that are muted here that are listening, feel free to chime in. I mean, if I, I think there's some, yeah, I, I think the, I, I know, you know, some people that are sitting here, if there's something that you guys want to kind of contribute to a conversation, feel free now, or if you guys need to go, totally understand that too. Appreciate you guys taking yeah. taking the time. Kevin, this is Brad. I'll just say thank you to the participants. I, I missed, um, my name is Brad Uchaz. I work with a, a, a charter school organization called Imagine Schools in Arizona. And I missed a huge opportunity because I wish I would have invited my principals uh, and a couple of our teacher leaders into this conversation. Um, and and hopefully I don't miss another opportunity like that, Charles. I think that was to your point at the end. Uh, this was a terrific dialogue for all of us to listen to. So thank you. The views and opinions expressed on the Better Learning Podcast are those of myself as an individual and my guests and do not necessarily represent the organizations that we work for, the Association for Learning Environments, K-12, Education Leaders Organization, or Second Class Foundation. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com BE to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash BE.